Hey, welcome to Recharting Your Life with Hope. I'm Hope Cook, creator and host. If you feel stuck, restless, overwhelmed, or dissatisfied with your current life, despite your life looking pretty good on paper, or at least on social media, I can totally relate. Together, we'll figure out how to take the next right step. I'll interview women who are a little farther along on the path and get tips and ideas from them. I definitely don't have it figured out, so I'll share the ups and downs of my own journey with you. Let's get started because life is too short to waste in autopilot. If you want to be the best possible version of you, you're in the right place. All right, welcome everybody. Today, I'm so excited to have Betsy Armstrong. Betsy and I met over a year ago in a writing group and she was not in my little small group, but we still had um, a breakout session where she read one of her pieces and it was on intuitive eating. And Betsy has made an entire platform out of this, a business out of it, and she's passionate about it. But her journey is fascinating. And so I can't wait to hear all about it and the steps that took her to becoming an intuitive eating coach. So welcome, Betsy. Well, thank you so much for having me, Hope. I am so thrilled to be here and thrilled to be able to spend some time with you because that that little breakout session was so long ago. I know. And the story that you wrote was basically, was it a letter from your body to you or a letter from you to your body? It was a letter from me to my body. Yes. Um, basically, very... basically apologizing to my body for all the things I've put it through. Um, based on trying to diet and, you know, fit into an ideal that my body's just honestly not going to fit into. Yeah, like, yeah, like maybe 1.00 or 0.000.1 of the population would naturally get that body. So it was an apology. And then it was also some promises about how I'm going to do better and treat my body better and listen to it. And that is very much an intuitive eating um, principle or what intuitive eating is based on. It's um, listening to the signals of your body about hunger, fullness, and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And then also um, deflecting all the societal messages that we get about diets and their effectiveness and Mm -hmm. not. And so it's, it was, um, I wrote that letter as just a writing exercise and it really triggered a lot of things that I've done over, over the years. And I thought now is the time I've, I've been into this intuitive eating thing for a long time, but now is the time I feel ready to really make this a thing for me. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. So, and then it, like, oh, I have a website and oh, I, you know, have stories about it and I have clients and yeah. I don't know what happened, but it's a thing. <laughs> well, you followed your curiosity, you followed something that you were passionate about and it, Absolutely. lo and behold, turned into a business. <laughs> yes. I love it when that happens. <laughs> and that's, you know, a lot of what this podcast is about is about listening to your intuition, whether it's in regards to eating or a job that's not a good fit or a relationship, but li- learning to listen to your intuition. So mm-hmm. when you first started out, I heard that you considered being a pilot. <laughs> <So>. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so 
just so your listeners understand, I'm, I am 57 years old, but she does. So, she looks 35. So. Well, you know, zoom and that improve appearance thing is amazing. <laughs> I have a great dermatologist. Um, but anyway, um, yes, I am one of those people who has really found her way through the process of elimination yeah. <laughs> instead of always knowing what I wanted to do, which I never have really. Um, my first choice was to become a pilot and I learned to fly and I did like it, but um, flying is like driving a car, only way more complicated and finding a place to park. <laughs> is really hard you can't just pull over to the side of the road when you're tired so i and yeah i just um decided that that's not how i wanted to really spend the rest of my life and so um i went on to major in food science so go figure because you know food has been a theme in my family and yeah. in my life and so you know i grew up in a family where um there was a lot of disordered eating. I had a stepdad who was a binge eater who, um, you know, he was six foot four and weighed over 400 pounds. Wow. And the way that our family treated him and the way he ate really set the stage for me to go on to have an eating disorder when I was in my late teens and early twenties. Mm -hmm. And that the treatment for that is kind of what led me into, um, majoring in food science for my undergrad because I was fascinated <laughs> by like, yeah. oh, you know, what, what is, how do you make food? What's, what is the chemical, you know, I have one of those brains that is both mm -hmm. science and um, kind of reading, writing verbal. And so it's a curse and a blessing because I don't really love science, but I like the science of food. Yeah. And so, back then I'm guessing this was around the time when fat grams were a thing. Oh, and right. like, I remember it, the rumor was that you could eat an entire box of Snackwell's cookies and that you were mm -hmm. okay because they were fat free. Exactly. <laughs> my senior project for my senior year of college was a fat free, sugar free chocolate cake. Oh my gosh. And it wasn't bad, but it certainly wasn't good. Right. <laughs> and um, yeah, cause it was, it was exactly that, you know, we were going through that carbs are great. Fat is evil. And yeah. protein was kind of neutral. And then of course we morph into, you know, now it's all keto and you can eat as much fat as long as it's the right kind and as much protein doesn't really matter, but carbs are now the evil, <laughs> the yeah. evil twin or triplet, I guess I should say. Um, but, um, so yeah, so that, that, when I graduated college, I actually worked for a pharmaceutical company in I sales. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it was, it was what got me from Minnesota where I grew up on a small farm mm -hmm. to the big city of Chicago, where I now live. So um, you moved to Chicago and became a drug dealer. Exactly. <laughs> when I want to shock people, that is exactly what I said. <laughs> like my parents were so proud. <laughs> not really, but so um, the life of a pharmaceutical rep is not easy. Did you love sales? Did you hate it? Well, you know, it, I love, I really did love the job. It was a dream job from the sense of, I put myself through undergrad. It took yeah. me seven years. Sometimes I worked three jobs. Um, and so when I got this job offer for 
really a gobsmacking amount of money, it seemed yeah. like back in 1989. Um, and a company car and an expense account. I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. I've made it big, you know? Yeah. Um, and then my very first day of work, I actually went, I sold, um, well, Pepsid was one of the drugs I sold, which yes. is now over the counter. But um, I, I had a lot of drugs that were specialty. Like I went to gastroenterologists and cardiologists and I wish I could have just gone to general practitioners because yeah. I think they're nicer people, uh -huh. quite frankly. Um, and I just, yeah, I didn't like dealing with doctors. I didn't like trying to schmooze my way in. I really didn't like catering for, <laughs> for yeah. the staff, hoping the doctor would swing by and sign for the samples. I mean, you're a PA, so you understand all this. Oh, like, I do. Maybe not that interesting to, <laughs> to listeners, but um but yeah, I just, I really didn't like it. And um, I went on then and I became a sales, I didn't mind sales, but I went to work for Kraft, um, oh. the food company. And so I literally sold food wow. <laughs> to restaurants and hospitals and, um, and, and schools, institutional sales of food. And I liked that fine. Um, but then I got a job, another opportunity to work for m, m Mars, the candy company. Oh, wow. And at this and time, this, were you a healthy eater? Were you like? Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been a pretty healthy person. I mean, eating disorder aside, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I've also always been an intuitive eater in the sense that I, I've always let myself eat what I want for the most part, just always watching the you know, amounts yeah. and probably waiting too long to eat and then eating whatever I wanted. So right, we can get right. into that later. But um, I was also a huge, I've been a marathoner for most of my life. I saw that. And not only a marathoner, you did a, you're a triathlete, I mean, a um, iron woman. Iron woman. Yes, I did. And a triathlete. And a, yep, triathlete. I did ultra marathons. I was like an endurance freak, which wow. probably was another way to compensate for my love of food. <laughs> But yeah. I also, you know, we'll get to that part because it is part of the story of mm -hmm. figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, so when I was working for m, m Mars, I had a day, I was building that feeling of like, this is, this is great. You know, I have a company car, I'm making good money. I have insurance, you know, all the yeah. things. Um, and I was single. I didn't have any sort of husband or kids or really any responsibilities besides my mortgage. And yet I would, you know, drive around and basically I called on grocery store managers and tried to get shelf space. That's what mm -hmm. you do in retail kind of marketing. Um, and I was sitting outside a jewel store, which in um, Illinois is uh, like a Safeway or it's a okay. grocery chain. Um, okay. I'm not sure where, you know, it's a grocery chain. Yeah. And so I'm sitting outside the store and I'm literally trying to psych myself up yeah. to go and I'm like, come on, you know, just go talk to him. He's a nice guy. And it's not that hard to sell Snickers and M&Ms, you know, it's, I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> you don't have to do anything, but just kind of say like, they're great. Can I have more space? Yeah. But it was just not fulfilling. Um, and I had made, so I made myself go in and I talked to him and then I decided to get something to, you know, like a bottle of water or something. And I'm standing in the line and I'm looking at this woman who I'm thinking she was a mom because she had a little baby in her cart, not a little baby, but like a toddler. And we're in the grocery, you know, checkout mm -hmm. and her kid is sitting in the front seat and he reaches over for the candy. Yeah. 
And his mom was like, no. And she kind of slapped his hand. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a little harsh. And then I thought about it and I'm like, oh my God, I am selling candy <laughs> to babies. Like this is what I do with my life. I'm yeah, that's why they put it right there at that level. I, right? Yeah. I mean, and I went back out to my car and I'm like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just not. And this was so long ago. It was, I like carried a checkbook with me. Yeah. So I flipped out my checkbook and I started like making little notations of my finances. Uh-huh. And some, I just was like, you know what? I have this much in savings and I can get in my head. And this is not necessarily true all the time and probably isn't true even now, but, um, I, I told myself I can get another sales job. Like if yeah. I really can't figure out my next thing, then I'll just go back to sales and mm-hmm. that'll be that. But after I tabulated, I drove home that night and I called my best friend who tried to convince me that selling Snickers was like making people happy, uh. <laughs> <laughs> which they do. I love Snickers, <laughs> but, um, I, I'm like, that's just not enough. And, um, the next day I called my boss and I said, I'm quitting. Oh, I, wow. I know. And, but I and, love how you were out of alignment and you realized it and you paid attention to the signs, like not wanting to get out of the car and how you felt when the baby grabbed the candy and got spanked on his hand. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you listened, you didn't like wait two years and end up with some chronic disease because your body was suffering from living out of alignment. So good for you. And I mean, the, the truth of it is though, for a couple of years before that, like I would at times, and this is before the internet. So at Mm -hmm. times I would look and try to find, you know, what schools are out there that I could go to grad school for something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't know what, but I was like, I can't, I want to help people. So I looked into um, education and social work and um, counseling programs. And um, so after I quit, I decided I was going to be a social worker Mm -hmm. and I got all my applications together and um, I applied to three schools. And so I also got a part-time job, so I wasn't like totally (laughs) being irresponsible, Um, but I remember, um, the first, I got the first letter back and it was a rejection. No. The second one back and it was a rejection. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have made a terrible mistake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, then uh, I came home and the third letter was an acceptance. So woohoo! I'm like, yes, I'm going to grad school. And, um, and so I started grad school and I loved it. Oh, I mean, wow. I went to grad school. I ended up switching from social work to counseling because okay. yeah, the school I went to for social work just wasn't quite a right fit, but um, I'm glad it got me in and then found me the right major basically for grad school. And, um, and I loved it. I mean, I had a moment, I remember driving in my car to school one morning and while I was in school, I worked at this bakery called yeah. Little Miss Muffin, which meant I had to be at work at 4 a.m. Wow. And I worked from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. every single day except Sunday. And then I'd go to school. Like I'd drive from work to school and go to school and then, you know, go to, yeah. So it was kind of a crazy schedule, but I'd been up, you know, soup. and I'm driving to, to school and 
it was a group counseling class that it was my first class that I was driving to. And I just, I loved it. I loved the teacher. And I just remember thinking I am in the right place. This is yes. it. So like, it was just that one of those moments you soak in, in your life and you're like, I did it. I did something right. This is yes. right. You know, when so, you know, and your body. Yes. Knows. Yes. And, and it was, it, I mean, I, I loved grad school. I love school period, but yeah. I really loved grad school. And, um, I, that was also not where, but when I met my now husband and I don't know, it was just one of those incredibly freeing times in life when, I felt like I was really on the right track. Yeah. And so it, it was really awesome. Did you picture <laughs> yourself like with a client on a sofa, like doing traditional therapy when you were in school? Did you know what your future would That's, look like? No. And, um, and that was kind of part of the problem. This is where the process of elimination comes in because um, I got out of grad school. Um, I did a internship in a rape crisis unit, um, which was very intense. And then I did an internship in a, um, like a private practice where I ran groups for, um, for, you know, couples and then also for, um, addicts and, mm -hmm. and I did individual counseling. I really liked it. Um, However, in the counseling world, you have to get a clinical license to have your own practice. And so that means you have to work for other people while they supervise you. I'm sure mm -hmm. it's somewhat the same in PA, you have, you know, the yeah. practicums and all those. So anyway, um, I got, I graduated and I worked on a crisis line, which was very stressful. Um, and um, again, I woke up one morning because um, they put me in charge of all the suicidal cases. I was really good at talking people off edges. Yeah, but you're literally um, dealing with people in the worst moment of their lives. Yeah. And, and it was just, um, just, I, I'm kind of, I'm a very empathetic person. I like to think, and I've been mm -hmm. told and working with that kind of, um, energy and yeah. intensity, for, you know, eight hours a day was, was just, it, it, about nine months in, I woke up one morning because you'll, you'll get a, you'll sense a theme here. I woke up one morning <laughs> and I turned to my husband and I said, this crisis has to be over. Like, I cannot do this anymore. But I like I, that you knew. Yeah. I mean, certain this is it. Yes, it's it's something that I've always been really proud of myself for in some ways, but then there's the flip side of it called impulsive. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody. Well, was your husband supportive or was he like, come on, Betsy, you can stick it out till you've been there a year? No, he, I was... I mean, I was literally going into the bathroom and crying at lunch. Oh, like I was so overwrought. I couldn't separate, you know, the, what was happening at work from the rest of, yes. I just carried it around with me and he could see that. So he was like, don't even worry, you know, start, start looking for another job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't make that much anyway. So, yeah. cause as a beginning counselor, you don't, I'll just warn yeah. everyone who thinks you know, that that's the way. Um, but if you're crying before work, after work or during work, people, yes. it's, it's, a sign. it's not, yeah, it's not a good, it's not a good fit. So, um, then I went into elder care because um, both my parents had passed away from cancer before I was 30 and I was their caregiver. Wow. For both of them. And, um, and you know, that was, that's a 
an experience, uh, unusual experience, I think, to have yeah. at the age we had that. And so I thought, hey, you know, helping other families go through this and mm -hmm. keeping their elders safe and um, in at home instead of in institutions was what I did. And I liked that too. Um, but it didn't make my heart sing. And when you work with older people, as our friend Rachel knows, yeah. everyone dies. Yes. <laughs> That's kind of depressing. Kind of a bummer. Yeah. You don't feel like you have much of a success rate when every yeah. client passes away. So I, I was like, oh, I don't know about that. And, um, and then I tried school counseling for a while, oh, which is yeah. also fun. Um, but again, it just wasn't making my heart sing. And uh, I went, I found, you know, again, I like looking for things to learn. And I learned about this thing called life coaching. Mm -hmm. This was back in 1999 when I think I was inspired by Oprah, quite yes, frankly. Me too. <laughs> and how I'm living every my day. Best, yes, every, you know, living my best life and yes. helping other people live their best lives. And honestly, what, what I realized in working in the sort of social services aspect of, of this kind of work was that a lot of it is about taking people who are experiencing some kind of dysfunction and helping them just get back to a baseline of normal, whatever mm -hmm. normal is or functioning. And I wanted to work with people who are already functioning, but wanted to be like exceptional, you know? Yes, so, that makes sense. Yeah, so I, be, I, I got certified as a life coach and I started my own practice and I loved it. Um, I just kind of found my way um, into helping women. Um, I coached them on health for the most part, because every single yeah. woman came to me like, I want to lose weight. I want to feel better about myself. And so it was sort of the intuitive eating part one of my uh -huh. life, because I developed curriculum. I did groups. I had individual clients. It's exactly what I'm doing now, only now it's virtual. And now I have a whole bunch of other experiences that I had in between mm -hmm. that have really informed um, my knowledge and my practice. That's, um, that's really cool. Your mess, even from when you're, you were talking about your stepdad being so overweight and his eating habits, and that was, you know, your mess growing up, but it became your message. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Mess becomes a message. That yeah. is so true. It is really true. And and yeah, I, I have often thought of the way things have turned out as a silver lining in a yeah. way to some of the experiences that I had that were not happy experiences or good experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so what's next? <laughs> um, so oh, you were yeah. forming group classes and yes. Um, so I was doing that and then 9-11 um, happened and wow. yeah. everyone's kind of disposable income you know, the, the stuff I was doing just became a lot harder to mm -hmm. um, make a living at. Um, and, and so it, it also coincided with me, um, finding an organization called girls on the run. Um, yes. I read that you were involved with that. Yeah. So I read about it in people magazine and I contacted the founder in North Carolina, because it's, it's a program that trains um, eight to 12 year old girls to run a 5k. And along with that, it's got a whole curriculum of life skills lessons Yeah, that just, I, 
it's one of those things that I think if I had had it as a girl, I probably wouldn't uh-huh. have had an eating disorder. I would have been much more self-confident and sure of myself in many ways. And, and I was a runner and I just think running is transformative. And, um, so I, I found this organization. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. Yeah. I don't know how, what, what can I do? And so, um, this, the woman, Molly Barker, who started it, put me in touch with um, five other women here in Chicago who Uh had all contacted her. And together we founded the Chicago chapter of Girls on the Run. Wow. I became the executive director of it. How cool. (laughs) It it was. It was was actually, um, again, it was that that time of like I was driving to grad school. Mm -hmm. I was working with adult women who wanted to coach and board members and schools and trying to, you know, grow this program. And, um, and it just, it was, it's such a contagious mission for Mm -hmm. women who want to, or wanted to feel empowered, but didn't when they were kids. And so it it just seemed like everyone I met is like, oh my gosh, I wish that had been there. And so um, it, I did it for almost four years. And then I was, Um, I switched a little to become the head of the Chicago Area Runners Association, the executive director there. Um, And then I was working with adults and helping them achieve their running goals really is what we did. Um, And I love that. What? And I wanted to pause and and just mention how you serendipitously saw the girls on the run. You Hmm. said it was on the Today Show? No, it was in People Magazine. People Magazine. We were doing one of those like everyday hero things about the founder in North Carolina. And when you see something like that, or you hear something like that and you think, oh, that's really interesting. Like that's so important to pay attention to that. And um, yes, follow your curiosity. And you reached out, not thinking that this would be a job. No, I mean, I was like, I want to volunteer. I want to, you know, I want to do something. Um, And then when we got it started and going and we, it, it became a thing where, somebody has got to run this uh-huh. and, you know, and we're all going, do you want to do it? Do you want to do it? I'm like, no, I want to do it. Like no one else is doing this. I am doing this. I was yeah. made to do this. Like, this is it. And, um, thankfully they let me, <laughs> yeah, they, they hired me officially. You know? yeah. So, um, but yeah. And then, I mean, it went from like a hundred girls when I started to over 5,000 when I quit. Oh, Betsy. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was so much fun. Hope I, I was, it was also really stressful because I felt like this is a, it's all on my shoulders. Like if it doesn't go, it's going to be my fault. So, um, I, I think I worked harder at that than I, I ever worked at any of my much better paying, much better benefited jobs, but because it was just really my heart's desire at the time that it, it was so aligned with my purpose, my mission, you know, who I was. And so it it was just, it's, it's one of those things. I feel so lucky that I found it because I know that there are people out there, women, the ones you're, we're talking to right now Uh that are looking for that thing. And it, you know, it is a sense of listening and thinking, what do I really love? You know? And at that point I'm like, I really, I love running. I feel mm-hmm. like it can transform people's lives. I really, I really, I still believe that. And, and this is such an interesting way and a cool way, a new way of introducing that 
to to younger girls who need this. Yes. You know, I was thinking about my younger self, like one of the questions you had sent me, you know, what would you mm -hmm. say to your, your younger self? And that whole job was about talking to the younger self who was now me, you know, yes. in the form of all these other girls. I heard it put another way, um, choose alignment over achievement. Yes. And so yeah. like you said, you weren't making more than you'd made at your other jobs. You were probably making a lot less, but yeah. you were in alignment. Well, and event what's what's interesting is eventually as it grew and grew and I, you know, I had to hire people and oh, wow. um, I mean, I and I not not now, but I had made them I made the most money there eventually oh, wow. than I ever did at any of my other jobs, yeah. which which and yeah. <laughs> If, if you ever need a fundraiser, don't call me, but I'll tell you how to do it because I don't <laughs> do it anymore. <laughs> That's where being a salesperson really helped. I'm, I'm a really good fundraiser. <laughs> That's wonderful. So with the running, so then you became the head of the Chicago chat. Tell me what the other running position was. Um, it's There's a Chicago area runners association, which okay. is the third largest running club in the U.S. It, wow. Um, has over, well, when I was there, it had over 10,000 members and it was, we worked with the Chicago marathon and a bunch of races to do training wow. programs. And, um, and again, it just felt like I, I was helping these people who had a goal of running a marathon or a 10 K or their first five K. And I, I don't know, there's something that just really makes me so happy when someone else gets that feeling of like, oh my God, I didn't think I can do this, but I can. Yes. And I did. And if I can do that, what else can I do? Yes. You know, you're an encourager through and through like the counseling, the running. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. So was yeah. there a point where you kind of got burned out with running? Yes. Um, what happened? Uh, and again, I'm in Chicago here where this was um, a huge big deal. Um, the Chicago marathon, um, has 40,000 or well before COVID mm -hmm. <laughs> it had like 45,000 runners in it. And it was wow. it over the city. It's if you've ever been to the Boston marathon or the New York marathon, you know, everyone in Chicago knows it's the marathon. And in 2007, when I was the executive director, um, it was the year that, uh, it was so hot that um, the marathon ran out of water on the course. Whoa. Um, people died. Wow. Um, the emergency system of Chicago was overwhelmed. Like wow. there were so many people falling and, you know, just like being dehydrated and heat stroke and all of this stuff. Um, and we had a tent, a huge tent where our runners, cause we had about 10, as I said, like 10,000 people, I was in charge of 10,000 of those 45, mm -hmm. or I felt in charge, let's put it that way, because mm -hmm. I had ran their training programs, and I was their encourager, and yeah, um, and you know, you send people off to go run 26.2 miles, and you're like, you're gonna do it, mm -hmm. and then <laughs> things started happening, and um, and it was a day, I mean, I don't want to say PTSD because that's a really strong term, but it did feel like I was in a war zone. Yeah. And I mean, we had people 
dropping literally in our tents, going into wow. convulsions. And I was calling 911 and no one was answering. Oh, that's awful. And I, yeah, I mean, it was, it was the biggest crisis I've ever been in, in my life. And, yeah. um, and before that day, I, I would have told everybody, you know, if you want to run a marathon, you can, like, uh -huh. it's possible. And after that day, I decided that not everyone should run a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, there's a time and a place and you shouldn't run if you're not prepared. And if it's that bad, I mean, it was, it was just really uh, awful. And I mean, it was the point where I was on the Anderson Cooper show Oh wow! <laughs> I, the morning after the marathon, Fox news met me at the door of the office, like wow. trying trying to get comments about what had happened. And so, yeah, that, that really, um, burst my bubble in a lot of ways. Yeah. Your life and, shifted in a, mm -hmm. and, um, and so coincidentally about a year later, um, the person who had replaced me at girls on the run called me one day at work and told me she was quitting. And we laughed when she said, Hey, do you want your old job back? And I was like, ha ha ha. And then I thought about it and I was like, I kind of do. And so <laughs> I called the board director and I was like, can I throw my hat in the ring for this? And she's like, sure. And I went back to girls on the run for another wow. three years. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, and by now it was like over 10,000 girls and just, it was really, really, it had grown so much. It was, it was a real organization as opposed yeah. to a organization. Um, but it was, you know, I remember telling people I'm back in my happy, sparkly place because here it's a 5k, yes. <laughs> no one's going to die, knock on wood, yes. you know, and it's so much more manageable and just happier, uh -huh. happier. And you were coaching. I mean, even though it was coaching girls and, and stuff, um, that was still a know, form of, no, it, it was, it was more though, managing the yeah. non it. I mean, I had a staff, I think at that point of like 10 or 12 people. And, um, and so I had program directors who hired coaches who, you know, so, yeah. um, but I still, we put on our own five K's and the last one that I did before I left was at soldier field in Chicago. And we wow. had like almost 15,000 runners and all girls, and mostly girls and their parents and, yeah. you know, um, but I remember we had, um, we were at the top of soldier field, like in the press box, uh -huh. because it's kind of a control center. When you have something that big, you have to kind of manage all the pieces. Yeah. And, um, and I just remember looking down and watching all the school buses come in and the girls coming into the field and they're all wearing the same color t-shirts. Cause you know, it's the color of the season that we mm -hmm. would give them. And just watching this sea of people and it's, it's just a really awesome day at girls on the run when you're at the finish line, especially, and you just see these again, it's that feeling of like, Oh my God, I couldn't do that. But I did. How did I yes. do that? And there's tears and laughter and maybe some vomit because <laughs> you run a little too hard. You might throw up. Maybe a scraped knee, but you know, it's just, it's again, such an inspiring, happy place that I, I was back in my happy place. Yeah. And then, and, <laughs> well, at that time, how old were you about? I was, um, I was 47 years old. Okay. And 
this is where <laughs> some more backstory. You pro- you're probably like, my God, come on, Betsy. Get no, I could point. listen to people's stories all the time. <laughs> clearly my listeners agree because they okay. listen too. But Thank okay, you. so what happened at 47? So what happened at 47 was that um, my mom had died when she was 46. Okay. And my entire life, I had never really wanted to have kids because I didn't, for whatever reason, I had it in my subconscious or consciousness at a certain point that I thought I was going to die at 47 or at 46 when my mom did. Mm, That makes sense. Um, She died of colon cancer. It's got a genetic component to it. And although I (laughs) always get that checked um, and I'm fine, but I, I was just, I had this feeling of like, Mm -hmm. you know, 46 is the end of the line for me. So I better hurry up and get stuff done before that. And then I turned 47 and it was kind of like, well, what am I going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> you know? you wake up and you look around <laughs> and you're like, like, I'm alive. I, I'm alive. What the hell? <laughs> Excuse me. Can I say that on your podcast? You can say that. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I, and I started really just thinking about, um, you know, did I really want to have kids? Did I, I know, I mean, like my level of fertility was obviously not, it wasn't going to happen that way. And my husband and I, all these years had gone back and forth and been kind of like, do we want, I don't know, we have a great life. Why would we mess it up? But then will we be lonely? You know, it it just, Mm -hmm. it never was really something either of us wanted to do. Um, so, so much that we were going to convince the other person, I guess. Um, and we both agreed we had to have two yeses <laughs> in order I to like do that. that. <laughs> so, so yeah, so at 47, I revisited it with him and, um, and we went on our adoption journey Wow, that you can read about in my memoir, <laughs> Yes, but, um, ultimately we, we had a failed adoption. We tried to adopt one, um, sibling set and that didn't work. And we, I wasn't, I thought this is the universe telling me I'm not supposed to do this. And, um, and then we heard about the two kids, Andre and Svetlana, who, um, had been with another family because, because let me back up. This sounds weird. Um, we, went through a program called the Bridge of Hope, which mm-hmm. still operates. Um, and they bring groups of older orphans to the United States um, to live with host families for about three to four weeks in the summer and then again in the winter. And we had had some friends who did this and ended up adopting two beautiful daughters from Russia. And so we, went that route. And, um, when we were hosting the children that didn't turn out because they ended up not being available to adopt, um, our kids eventually they were with another family. And so the adoption agency connected us with this other family who had already adopted four children. And they decided that six was just too much, which I could totally understand. Oh yeah. Um, but the mom and the dad, um, I talked to them for a long time and they were both like, these kids are amazing. Like we would have adopted them. We just, we, our family can't handle it. And, Mm -hmm. and so based on their, you know, uh, (laughs) encouragement, um, Doug and I decided to try again and we hosted Andre and Svetlana in December of 2012 
And then they came home to live with us Aww. as our son and daughter on October 3rd of 2013. Aww, and that's so sweet. I know. And Andre had just turned 12 Aww. and Svetlana was almost 10. So, um, yeah. And of course there was drama in that, or I wouldn't have written a book about it. That's but... right. <laughs> Y'all have to read her book. Uh, I know. Mother right? of all decisions as a motherless daughter's, wait, you say it. The mother of all decisions. Yes. A motherless daughter's <laughs> journey to adoption. I now you understand. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's a long title. I might, I might have to tweak it a bit. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. So all of a sudden you are a mama. Yes. And because of the older complicated children that I had yeah. adopted, who spoke no English. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I, um, I chose to leave girls on the run and become a stay at home mom. Yeah. Um, even though I had never in a million years imagined myself in that role. And, um, and uh, to be completely honest, hope I was such an anxious mess of a mom. I'm sure. <laughs> I cannot I, imagine bringing like bringing home babies. That's hard enough, but bringing home tweens and a, <laughs> I know. Well, and the funny thing is they actually tried to give us, I say, they tried to give us babies. The oh. first referral we got was for one and a half and a two and a half year old. Oh my and my words before I could stop them <laughs> came out of my mouth. I don't want babies. Yeah. I don't want babies. <laughs> and the social worker said, but everybody wants babies. Uh-huh. I, I don't, I I've never changed a diaper. I still have never changed a diaper in my 57 year old life. And, um, and I'm like, I just, babies scared me. Yeah. It was like too much need. I just, uh-huh. I had no concept of how to take care of something that couldn't communicate with me. But you, you knew your kids, like when you met them, you said you, these were like, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it was just really the opposite, the experience of Andre and Svetlana was so opposite the experience we had with the other two children. Yeah. And I mean, I still wonder to this day what is happening and what happened. And Mm -hmm. it's just really unfortunate. Um, but I mean, for Andre and Svetlana, it turned out really well. (laughs) I like to think. And, um, and yeah, it's just after we went through what we went through in Russia, um, it was just, I knew, I knew I wanted them and only them. So, um, so yeah, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Like, and I called myself a reluctant stay-at-home mom yeah. because I so missed working. I missed being around adults. I I did not love, and I still don't love the the grind of like uh-huh. laundry and dinner and groceries. And yeah. it's like, <laughs> can't everyone just take care of themselves? Yes, <laughs> no, they can't. So <laughs> so it's my job. Um, and you'd had such stimulating jobs too. Yeah. I mean, I really, um, and, and yeah, and, and I just, I was used to, I think just working on a bigger level and I don't mean that as like more status or anything. It was just like, you know, being with two little kids versus being with, yeah you know, thousands of adults <laughs> is very different. And, um, and so I did that and it, during that time I would, say like, oh, okay, I'm going to get this job. And I would work at a job. And normally, I mean, I got jobs in nonprofits Mm -hmm. and as fundraiser or, um, 
I got a couple of executive director jobs and, and it just, it wasn't the same for many reasons. Um, it wasn't girls on the run, but it was more that I, it was that push pull of being a working mom, I think. And then my husband has a really demanding job where he travels a lot and, and he, his job supports our family. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was, it, it was just, if he was out of town, I couldn't go to a volunteer meeting at night. I had to, you know, go home and take care of kids. And, and so it just, it wasn't the right time for me to do that. And, yeah. um, and ultimately it, it was okay. Um, but in adopting the kids and having them and being at home, I remember just thinking I, I need a hobby yeah. <laughs> and I, went online because now the internet existed (laughs) and I started just going, well, you know, I could, I could learn to play the piano again, or I could Uh take Spanish (laughs) class, you know, like I want to learn something. You were life coaching yourself. (laughs) Exactly. And then I thought, you know, I want to, I want to do something that instead of starting from scratch, it's something that I I like doing and, and that who knows where it will take me. Like, I don't want to make it like, Oh, I have to learn to speak Spanish so I can go to Mexico and converse with, you know, the locals. I I just wanted, so I found writing. Yeah. Um, I had always wanted to be a writer. I had, I've kept a journal since I was 15 years old. Yeah, me too. And yeah. And so, and I thought, you know, I, I took some writing classes in my undergrad, but I never, you know, that's, that was fluff (laughs) because I was going to be a nutritionist or a food scientist, you know? And so I started taking, I took one memoir class at a place called story studio in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Great place. It's online now. So people can go. Um, that's where I met Nadine. Um, and our writing coach, for those of you who I interviewed her on an earlier episode, if y'all want to listen to that. Yeah, I, I actually, I need to listen to more of your episodes. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> You're <laughs> so forgiven. Hard. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so I started writing and, um, and I just, it was so therapeutic. I, I mean, yes. I, I wrote about my first piece was about meeting the little girl that we didn't end up adopting oh, Wow. and, and how, how that went. And so anyway, and I just, it got, I got on a roll and like within three years, I had 460 pages. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I I really like writing and I don't, I don't have writer's block, obviously. (laughs) I, I can sit down and, and blah, but, um, but I hate editing. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so, um, so yeah, I got into writing and, and, and just took classes. And then when I realized, wow, I could actually make a book out of this. That's when I started to, uh, basically I found Nadine and she helped me shape all the stuff I'd written into a memoir. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was with Nadine in one of our coaching sessions where I wrote that letter to my body. Yes. That we talked about in the beginning. Exactly. So kind of bring it full circle. It's like, it's a wandering story people, but eventually we'll get back to it. And when, you know, she was listening to me read it and, um, giving me feedback, she's like, you know, this sounds really like it's, it's hitting you in some way. And I'm like, well, it is, it's got a lot of stuff that I've worked through over the years. And, 
And it just brought me back to the coaching business that I'd had where ironically or synchronistically, I'm not sure. Um, I had used the first edition of the book, intuitive eating, which was written in 1995. That was Evan Trivoli. Uh, yes. Evan Trivoli and Elise Resch. Um, and that book just came out in its fourth edition. And, um, so I had used that as a blueprint for some curriculum I'd done around coaching women, um, in their eating habits. And, um, so I went online and I'm look, cause I couldn't find it in my bookshelf. I'm like, it was this little paperback and I had, mm-hmm. you know, turned all the pages. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And this is interesting. Couldn't find it. So I ordered the new one. And when I saw they were offering now a certification in intuitive eating coaching, I was like, I'm signing up for that. Now, now we're in the time of COVID. So I'm like, what else yeah. am I going to do? <laughs> you know? oh, I love that. And you couldn't find the book. That was, I think that was probably the universe hiding it from you. Exactly. <laughs> and I still can't find it. I don't know what yeah. happened to it, but you know, um, but yeah. And so I took the certification course last year and then, um, t- then I met you in early of last year as well. Yeah. And the platform building turned into an intuitive eating platform building instead of a writing memoir platform building. Um, and it's just kind of taken off and it is, it's really interesting to me. And I'm still you know, straddling that line between intuitive eating coaching and then also writing because I, I don't want to stop writing now. I want to actually write another book about um, a series of essays about women and our bodies and how we treat them and what we think of them and how we can feel empowered in them and embody. That'll be a huge hit. There's not enough information out there about how we feel about our bodies. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's, there are a lot of good books. Um, Sonia Renee Taylor, um, your body is not an apology is a really good book. Mm-hmm. Um, but was, anyway, uh, Janine Roth. Oh, Janine Roth, women, food, and God is another yeah. one. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I think it's, I think women are finally getting to a point where we are starting to kind of say, why should we conform to these specific standards that as, as our world has become digitalized, especially mm-hmm. Um, the images that people are seeing aren't even real. And yet we're trying to look like that. Mm -hmm. And, and in a way I look back at, and I used to say this at girls on the run, when I was talking to women, parents or coaches, I would say, you know, the way we've all worried and the energy that we put into looking a certain way or weighing a certain amount, if we could harness all that energy and put it towards solving a real problem. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. You know, the world could be so much better. Yes. You know, we could, we could solve world peace and world hunger. And I mean, women are powerful and we, I, I just, I just, I'm mad at myself for wasting time on mm. all that nonsense. Um, and I guess that's part, I I don't want to make people feel bad for, you know, wanting to look their best or be healthy, but I also just think there's, there's a point at which it's not healthy (laughs) and we could use that energy in a better, more productive way that will actually make the world better. And, And then we wouldn't 
be wasting our mental energy, beating ourselves up because we had a cupcake. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yeah. a cupcake. It was delicious. Enjoy it and move on. I love how you're, you see the small picture, like the individual client who's struggling with um, what to eat and feeling guilt about food. And then mm-hmm. you also see the big picture with women all over the world and how we see our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, and then I get kind of angry and a little too feministic sometimes for my husband when I'm like, it's the patriarchy, you know, holding us back, <laughs> telling us we have to be pretty and quiet. <laughs> well, you know, that's one way I've read that it's helpful to find what you're passionate about is to think about what makes you mad. And yes. so yeah, you can turn that into your next thing, into your yes. hobby or your job or whatever. Right. Yeah. If it's something you get really fired up about, uh-huh. then that's energy that you could put to a new solution or ace, you know, the current solution or just to making things the way you want them to be, you know, yeah. you know, that sort of, if I was in charge of the world, here's how it would go. <laughs> yeah. And, so. and you've put all your pieces together, the, the life coaching, the counseling, Mm-hmm. The mentoring women and girls and the, I know the sports, it, you know, being a ultra marathoner. So it's amazing. Well, it, I mean, it, it just, I think if anyone is listening to this, what they should take away from that is that everything builds. Mm-hmm. And if you keep listening to yourself and keep identifying those passions or those, those those urges that you're getting to go in whatever direction it is. If you keep listening to that, your life will lead you. And all of the things that you've done along the way are going to come together. Yes. Nobody could have told me that when I was, you know, on a crisis line, (laughs) one day I'd be like, I'm coaching women on intuitive eating, (laughs) you know, know? but yeah, I mean, it all just, it all fits together. And I also realized that the whole girls on the run and running piece of my career was it, it adds now to my coaching. It adds something that I didn't have when I was Mm -hmm. doing it the first time, because now I've talked to so many more women about this very topic and, and heard so many stories and been able to, you know, have, I think in a way, a a wider audience of people Mm -hmm. to just even learn about it and teach about it. So, yes, yes, it all comes together. Everybody just hang in there and keep listening to yourself. (laughs) Hang on. So Betsy, tell everybody where they can find you or if they want to hire you or do a class with you. Well, um, I am on BetsyArmstrong.com, which is B-E-T-S-Y-A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G armstrong.com. And I'm also at words by Betsy on Instagram. Um, so I'll link both of those. Thank you. Um, I do an overview of intuitive eating. That's a one-time class. And then I also do a series. That's a six session series of, um, classes on all of the 10 principles of intuitive eating that are in the book. And, um, you know, now have been researched and all kinds of exciting things. Thanks for coming, Betsy. Oh my God, you were so so awesome. This was so fun. That was so good. I feel so pumped, y'all. Okay, here's your take-home points. Number one, follow your curiosity. 
follow your passions and listen to your intuition. If you see an ad on a TV or magazine that like really piques your curiosity, that is a sign. Use the process of elimination if you don't have a clue what you want to do. Just keep trying stuff. Betsy tried being a pilot, a pharmaceutical salesperson, a candy bar salesperson, a counselor, working with girls on the run. She tried a lot of stuff. Number two, when you have that moment in your job where you realize you're out of alignment, this is your inner GPS telling you it is time to change paths. One of the biggest signs, if you're crying at work, before work, or after work. Likewise, you will learn to recognize those moments in your life where your mind and body are aligned. You'll just have this deep knowing that you're on the right track. Betsy said it felt like her heart was singing. And lastly, all the paths you take will build on each other, even if they don't make sense at the time. Just keep listening to yourself. Keep identifying those urges to go in a new direction. If you listen, all those pieces of your life will add up and fit together into a big, beautiful image called your life. It will all come together. You just have to hang in there and keep listening to yourself. You did it. You made it through another one-hour episode. Thank you all for spending your time with me. Let me know if you would like to hear any other topics discussed or you have a guest in mind you'd like to have on the show. Shoot me an email, hope.cook at gmail.com. And as always, I would appreciate your reviews on Apple.